Let me ask you this question as we start this morning. Uh, how many of you, as you were growing up, and maybe even now, uh, sought to be known by everyone who knew you as average? That's how you wanted to be known. If somebody mentioned your name or made any reference to you, they would say, oh, him or oh, her, they are really average. <laughs> how satisfied were you to get average grades? How uh, satisfied were you to be told that whatever skills you had, they were just average skills? I believe that most of us strive to be more than just average. Most of us want to have at least one skill in our lives, one area where we excel beyond just being average. Well, the disciple we're looking at this morning, at least from all outward appearances, was just average, just an average guy. If you looked at him from the outside and knew nothing else about him, that would probably be your conclusion. He's just an average person. And that's why this series that we're involved in is so important. Again, our mission on earth is to be Jesus Christ to our world. Now, if you watch TV very much or watch the preachers or read some of the Christian literature, uh, what you're going to find in a lot of those places is they're going to tell you that it takes extraordinary skill to do that. Uh, The only way to be effective, according to some of these people, is to excel in some way and to have skills beyond what normal people had. That is simply not the case. And the disciple we're looking at this morning that we're focused on is clear proof that that's not the case. Uh, This morning, again, we're looking at this man, Nathaniel. Uh, We find him in the book of John uh, as Nathaniel. We find him in all the other Gospels as Bartholomew, but it's the same person. Now, just to show you how average he is, I'm guessing nobody in this place this morning could give me one fact about Nathaniel except what you read here just a few moments ago. He was a disciple, but like some of the others that we're going to study, uh, he was not on the disciple A list. Uh, He was not even on the disciple B list. Uh, Nathaniel was on the disciple C list. He was just the average disciple list. And yet we're going to learn some things about him today that will show us that in some ways uh, Nathaniel was anything but average. And even in the ways that he was just average, God overlooked that and called him to be one of the 12 that would be his followers and would get the gospel to the world. So if you sit here this morning and you see yourself as nothing more than average, the disciple we're looking at this morning is just made for you. Because you're going to see before we're done here this morning that God can do a supernatural work through that person who is simply average but surrenders themselves to the work of God. Now, there's some debate about this, I realize. People are always debating something in God's word. But it seems clear again that Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same person. He's mentioned in the first three Gospels only in the list of disciples. The only information we really find about him beyond that is in the book of John. Uh, So most of our time is going to be spent there this morning. Now, Nathaniel came from a little town, uh, Cana of Galilee. That's where Jesus Christ did his first miracle of turning water into wine. Uh, we have this recorded for us in the ver- we, verses we read this morning. Go there again if you would. Here's a record of Nathaniel coming to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 43 again, John chapter 1. It says, The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael saith unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. There's the calling of Philip, or the calling rather of Nathanael, to Jesus Christ. Philip follows the Lord, and the next thing that he does is takes Nathanael to find Jesus Christ with him. Now, in the list of apostles, Philip and Nathanael are always listed together. We're going to assume they were uh, friends in some way. Uh, In Scripture, we have uh, indications that they were very close friends. It was Philip who brought Nathanael to Jesus Christ after hearing John the Baptist's message and then responding himself to the Lord's call uh, to follow. But whatever the reason was, Philip was sure that Nathanael would be interested in this news that the Messiah had come. And he could not wait to share that news with his best friend. 
Now, we're going to look at this event a little more carefully because we learn a great deal about who Nathaniel was and the kind of character he had as we look at this account in John chapter 1. The first characteristic we see about Nathaniel revealed to us in this passage is that Nathaniel had a love of the Scripture. He had a love of the Scripture. And we see that again in the words that Philip used to announce the Messiah to, Philip, to Nathaniel. Uh, verse 45 again, uh, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Clearly, Philip was aware that Nathanael knew what the Old Testament scripture said about the Messiah. That's why Philip announced him to, in that way to, to Nathanael. He knew that Nathanael would be intrigued by the idea that the Old Testament scriptures written by Moses and the prophets were being fulfilled. So from that, we have to conclude that Nathanael was a student of the scriptures. He had a keen interest in what was said in the Old Testament in those scriptures, especially regarding the prophecies of the Messiah. And it is almost certain that Nathanael and Philip both came to hear John the Baptist because they are aware of the prophecy that told them there was going to be a forerunner before the Messiah showed up. And based on their understanding of Scripture, John's message that they heard about was what they would expect to hear from the forerunner to the Messiah. And so they had to go to hear that message for themselves. Now, somewhere along the way, they got separated. And as we saw last week, Philip was sought out by Jesus Christ. And once Philip met him, he went to find his friend so that he could introduce him to the Messiah as well. And I want you to see the appeal, again, that Philip gives to Nathaniel in his invitation. He doesn't say... Come see a man who can solve every problem that you have. He doesn't say, come see a man who can make you healthy and wealthy. He doesn't say, come see a man who can give your life purpose and give your life meaning. He did not give Nathaniel any basis, appeal on any basis of how he might improve Nathaniel's life in the here and now. He appealed to Nathaniel by saying, come see a man who fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. Come see a man who fulfills what Scripture has to say. Come see a man who has done exactly what God's Word said the Messiah would do. Now, I make that point for this reason. At some point along the way, years ago, the appeal to Jesus Christ changed. The appeal became much more about trusting Jesus Christ so that he could solve your problems or make your life better or fix the issues you might be dealing with. Uh, trusting Jesus Christ was focused on, the very, on very much on the here and now. As heretical as this may sound to you, folks, Jesus Christ did not die on a cross to fix your life now. It's not why he died. Now, they will say that. That's not the case. He didn't die so that you could have more money in the bank. He didn't die so you wouldn't have to go to the doctor anymore. He didn't die so that your marriage would go well or that your kids would turn out well. The appeal became at some point in time, let Jesus Christ come into your life. Can I tell you something, folks? Jesus has no interest whatsoever in coming into your life. We have people all over this world who have Jesus Christ in their life. Uh, they may go to church every Sunday. They may read the Bible consistently. They may do all sorts of things. Jesus Christ is in their life, but they're headed for hell. Because that's not what saves a person. Getting Jesus Christ into your life is not going to save anybody. You're not going to get saved with that approach. Uh, the reason that appeal became popular is because it avoided having to talk about the real issue for the reason Jesus Christ came. People would respond readily to that message. If Jesus Christ is going to fix my life, he's going to fix some part of my life, I'll go see him. And people would come and more could be reported as saved because that approach was given. Here's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. He died because God said the wages of sin is death. That's why he died. Jesus Christ died because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Jesus Christ died because God said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That's why Jesus Christ died. It's not about getting a better life here. Those things may come as a byproduct. Praise God for that. But that is not the purpose of God's salvation. The purpose of God's salvation is settling our sin problem. The problem that every person uh, has. And he came to renew fellowship with the Father as that sin problem is settled. And whatever happens after your salvation is just a bonus. That's why he died. What we know about Nathaniel from this passage is that he was a seeker of divine truth. He followed what God said and was drawn to the truth that God spoke. And the only way a person is ever going to get saved is when they realize what God's truth says about them and when they realize that he provides the only remedy for the problem they have. You can't fix your sin problem any other way but by Jesus Christ. You can do the best you can to reform and do all the the programs and so forth to try and make yourself better. All good stuff. You're going to die and go to hell if that's all you do. There's more to it, you see. A person is not saved by allowing Jesus Christ into their life. A person is saved when they allow Jesus Christ to change their heart. That's when a person gets saved. And that comes by accepting what God's word says about their heart, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And that message may draw fewer to the Savior because it doesn't appeal to their flesh. But the ones that respond to that message will receive what he offers, a changed heart as sin is paid for and a way to heaven because that sin is settled. And if you have never confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you never trusted him to be your Savior, asked him to save you based on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, you may be a religious person, but you are not a saved person. And before we close today, we're going to give you the opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you'll do that, you'll have your sins settled once and for all and forever and be in fellowship with God for the rest of your your time, which is going to be eternity. (laughs) Now, let me say this also. Saved or lost, God is honored and God is, God's blessings come to those who will seek his truth. God blesses those whose hearts are open to the truth of God. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, God's truth is not always pleasant and God's truth at times is downright painful. But there are great blessings for those who will simply seek out God's truth and accept his truth as it stands. We are overwhelmed today with people who say that they only want the truth until that truth runs contrary to something they want to believe or something they want to do. And then the truth becomes an enemy to them. You see, Nathaniel knew the truth of God's word. He wanted to see that truth fulfilled. And wise is the person who simply accepts God's truth as it stands instead of trying to change the truth and instead changes themselves to match what the truth requires so the truth can be fulfilled in them. When you hear God's truth, folks, the response is to say, how do I match up? And if I don't match up, don't change the truth. Change yourself. (laughs) Do something different inside. Change who you are uh, to line up with God's truth because God's truth is absolute. It's not going to change. So Nathaniel recognized the Messiah because Nathaniel spent many hours pouring over the scriptures that revealed who the Messiah was and how he would operate. And so when he met Jesus Christ, it didn't take him long to recognize who he was and accept him as the Messiah. And that, again, reinforces to us the great benefits that come to those who will be students of the Word of God. However, in this exchange, we also see another quality of Nathaniel revealed. We also see Nathaniel's attitude of prejudice, his attitude of prejudice. Now, again, Nathaniel was a student of the Word of God, but he was also human. 
And as is true with all of us, God's word will help us keep our flesh under control. In fact, it is mandatory if you want to keep your flesh under control. But the word of God does not eradicate that flesh. You still carry that with you. And it can still operate if we allow it to. And that's what I believe we see happening here with Nathanael. Look at verse 45 again. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip gives Nathanael the background on the Messiah. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And if we sort of read between the lines, you can hear a, a bit of surprise in, in Philip's voice, almost as if, as, as if he's saying to, to Nathanael, you aren't going to believe this. The Messiah is the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. That's who the Messiah is. And apparently Nathanael was just as surprised as Philip was and maybe actually a little put off by it. Look at his response in verse 46. And Nathanael said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Apparently, Nathaniel is also a little surprised. He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, he could have responded in many different ways. He could have said, for example, uh, from what I've read in the book of Micah in the Old Testament, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Or he could have said, oh, this doesn't make sense to me. The Messiah should be identified with Jerusalem because that's where he's going to reign. But instead, Nathaniel answers almost in disgust. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? His response is not based on a biblical concern or some rational argument. He didn't like the town of Nazareth. He hated that town. Now, it's interesting because Cana had no more prestige than did Nazareth. In fact, Cana was off the beaten path, while at least Nazareth was at a crossroads. If people were going from the Mediterranean to Galilee, they would go through Nazareth. If they wanted to go from Jerusalem to Lebanon, they'd go through Nazareth. No one passed through Cana. No one even made Cana a destination. So the fact that Nazareth had little to offer doesn't explain Nathaniel's remark. There must have been some sort of civic rivalry between these two towns. Maybe they had rival football teams who played each other every year and hated each other because of the football team. A legitimate reason not to like another town, right? Anyway, the fact that Nazareth didn't have a lot to offer really didn't make a lot of difference to him. It was a fact that uh, even though it was not picturesque, it was actually a pretty rough town at the time. All the Galileans looked down on Nazareth. Everybody from Galilee disliked Nazareth. And so Nathaniel was doing nothing more than echoing the contempt that all the Galileans had for that town. So here's a man who disliked a town. And here's a man who disliked the people in that town simply because of where that town was and because it was expected for him to do so. Because he came from Cana, he was required or expected to hate those from Nazareth. Here is a man who held prejudice against a group of people for no other reason than because of the town they lived in. That's the only reason he hated them. And God calls this man to be a disciple. Now, there are Christians who don't serve God because they feel unworthy to do so. Uh, they don't serve God because of some habit that plagues them or because of something in their past they feel that disqualifies them. I want to let you in on a little secret this morning, if you haven't already picked up on this. Ready? None of us are qualified to serve God. None of us. There's not one person in this room or listening today that is qualified to serve God. If God is looking for qualified people, people who meet a certain standard before he can use them, he couldn't use any of us. We all carry attitudes and personality traits and ways of thinking that are completely of the flesh. So if that disqualifies somebody from serving, none of us can serve. But you see, all God really wants is somebody who will recognize their frailties and place them under the control of the Spirit of God. That's all he wants. 
All he wants is a people who will follow the guidance that he provides to them in getting this flesh and the desires of this flesh under the control of the Spirit of God. If we'll do that, he'll take care of everything else. The only explanation for how God can use any of us is that he has the power to take frail and unqualified people and somehow transform them into servants. But it's all of God. And that also means that whatever is accomplished through us, all the glory goes to him. We can't claim any glory for it because it has nothing to do with us. We're just the vessels God uses. We are certainly unusable, but God's power can take unusable instruments and make them usable to him. So Nathaniel couldn't believe that any good thing, and especially the Messiah, could come out of this corrupt, tacky, uncultured place like Nazareth. And, of course, in that he missed the entire idea that he had come from just as corrupt and uncultured place himself. Now, I mentioned to you that uh, Nathaniel carried this prejudice. That word prejudice means to prejudge. What it means is holding to a set of standards or beliefs or opinions about a people or a place without knowing the individual and judging them certainly only because they are part of that people or because they are from that place. And that generalization gives people a feeling of superiority. I'm better than they are because I come from a better place than they do. And the belief then follows from that is because I'm better than them, I have the right to judge them. I have the right to decide if they're right or wrong. You are aware as you read through the Gospels, the nation of Israel was steeped in prejudice. Prejudice was a part of the reason that the nation of Israel rejected Jesus Christ. He wasn't from the right place. He wasn't part of the right group. He didn't behave the way a religious leader was supposed to behave. And on that basis, they refused to believe that he was the Messiah sent from God. And the real offense that turned that nation against Jesus Christ was how he reacted and responded to the religious establishment. That's where the real problem once showed up. The most prejudiced group of people against Jesus Christ was the ruling people of that time, the Pharisees. They were the most prejudiced group of all, the ones who rejected Jesus Christ categorically. Now, when I think of prejudice, I think of examples we've seen like racial prejudice or prejudice against nationalities. And those things certainly are real and they continue on to this day. But there is a prejudice that goes on in the church among believers. And the Pharisees are a picture of how that works. The Pharisees' prejudice was based upon a a standard of religiousness and righteousness that they had determined for themselves. They had developed a system that identified who was righteous and who wasn't. And then they would look at people and match them up according to that standard. And so if they matched up, they were good. If they didn't match up, they weren't good. So without even knowing a person, without even knowing how they conducted their lives in other ways, they would judge a person's spirituality based on their own standard. Now, that person could be following God's law consistently, but if how they did it didn't match up with how the Pharisees thought they should, then they were not spiritual and they were wrong in what they were doing. And the sad fact is, folks, that sort of prejudice exists in many churches today. I have met a number of Christian Pharisees over the years that I've been in church, and especially since I started pastoring. And the sad fact is that most Christian Pharisees don't even realize that that's what they are. They hear something like this and they point to somebody else. It can't be me. It's got to be somebody else. Please listen this morning and apply this to you if it applies. They see themselves, these Christian Pharisees, as doing God's work and holding to a standard and keeping people accountable. What they've actually done is decided for themselves, and I want to say this very clearly, outside of God's word or loosely connected to God's word, what is spiritual and what is not. They have decided for themselves what behavior is spiritual and what behavior is not spiritual. And again, it is all based on a standard that they have established or that has been given to them by some church leader that they admired and trusted. 
and a person either makes the grade or does not make the grade totally based on this contrived standard that has been established by them or by somebody else. And the motivation for all of this is the need for power. They want to be the authorities. They want to be the ones who decide who's right and who's wrong. And by the way, since it's their standard, uh, since they came up with it, they always come out more spiritual than anybody else because it's always their standard. And that then gives them the right to be the moral compass for everybody else. Now, I'm going to tell you something. A Christian Pharisee can destroy a church. A Christian Pharisee can create divisions among people that cannot be mended. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. And all the while they create those divisions, they believe they're doing God's work. Very righteous about it. Now, I want to address a few issues connected to this matter of prejudice. Number one, I am not qualified to judge anybody, and neither is any other believer. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15, But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. What does a spiritual person judge? A spiritual person judges things. A spiritual person judges what is good and what is bad for them based upon what the word of God says and what enhances their walk with the Lord and what hurts their walk with the Lord. But they don't judge people. No person is judged by another person on any basis. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. <laughs> Paul says, I'm not even capable, capable of judging myself, clearly implying that God is the one who must judge us and reveal to us what is good and what is bad in our walk with him. If we can't judge ourselves, how in the world could I ever judge another believer? And so I can't, if I can't judge somebody even as I know them, I certainly can't prejudge somebody on any basis since my knowledge in that case is much more limited. That's number one. Number two, the only basis for judging anything is that book you hold in your lap this morning. The only basis. I judge my behavior based upon what God's word says, not what I think it means, not what somebody else has told me, not my interpretation of it. What does the word of God say? And that is the only standard by which we judge anything. If God's word is clear about something, about some lifestyle, about some activity, then it is not me judging anymore. It is God's word judging. And there are some very specific things in that book, folks, that you just can't do if you're going to stay true to the Word of God. You just can't do them. And there are those among us who violate a clear teaching of God's Word. Here's what Paul tells us to do. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14. In fact, turn there if you would. Go hold your hand there, John, for just a second. And turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If there are those among us who violate a clear standard of the Word of God, something that is clearly taught in Scripture, here's what Paul says to do. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, look at verse 14. And this is pretty rough words, folks. Hold on. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, so it's the word of God being disobeyed, note that man and have no company with him that he might be ashamed. The first thing it says, if God's word judges the person and reveals something in their life that is opposed not to my standard, but to God's standard, I am permitted to do two things. First of all, I remove myself from them as far as my daily activity with them. And I do that for two reasons. First of all, their unbiblical behavior may cause me or influence me to walk in the same way. And that would cause me to sin. And number two, I do that so that I can abstain from all appearance of evil. If I'm with them, people might assume I do what they do, and I don't want to make that connection. And so I remove myself from them. 
Look at the verse again, verse 15. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The second thing I am permitted to do is admonish them. And notice, admonish them as a brother, as a brother. That means I I can go to them in the right spirit. I can go to them with the right heart. And I can show them what the word of God says. And hopefully the word of God will speak to them. And they'll change what they're doing uh, because they see what God's word says. But that is the extent of what I do. If I do anything more than that, I am now walking in the Pharisees' camp. And God does not permit me to walk in that camp. He doesn't want me anywhere close to that. Nathaniel had an issue with prejudice. He judged people and he judged things based upon appearance and based upon limited knowledge. And that same approach, sadly, is rampant in many churches today. And it simply has no place in the church of God among believers. We need to stay focused, folks, on allowing the word of God to judge us. (laughs) Just let the word of God judge you. And stay focused on judging things that exist in our lives and make sure we are not being pulled away from God's standards by things that we're allowing into our lives. And I should never judge anybody who walks into this place based upon their appearance, based upon how they dress, based upon the way they talk, or based upon the way they look. That is prejudging. I'm not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to judge them at all. Any person who walks into this building, we say to them, praise God you're here. And we accept them in the love of God and allow the word of God and the spirit of God to do whatever work needs to be done in their lives. Amen. Let God do it. Let God do it. Take your hands off it. Sabaka, take your hands off it. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> now, it's unfortunate that in Nathaniel's case, he didn't allow his prejudice to keep him from meeting Jesus Christ. And clearly the way to confront prejudice is with fact. Once he met Jesus Christ, he was well aware that good things indeed can can come out of Nazareth. Jesus Christ being one of them, the main one. Uh, The remedy for prejudice, folks, is an honest look at the truth. And Nathaniel did the right thing, and we will as well, if we allow God's truth to be our guide, and not our feelings, and not our preconceived ideas, and not our opinions. Now, here's a third thing about Nathaniel's character that I want us to see. This came out of the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. I want us also to see his sincerity of heart, his sincerity of heart, because Jesus knew was God. He knew Nathaniel before he ever came to him. Go back to John chapter one now, if you would, and look at verse 47. John 1, 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and saith of him. Now, Nathaniel has not even met Jesus Christ yet. Jesus saith of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, watch it, in whom is no guile. Jesus Christ proclaimed Nathanael as a man without guile. That word guile refers to deceit or dishonesty or deviousness. Someone who has a plan to deceive or fool somebody, and they'll appear to be one way, but will actually behave in a different way with the intent of getting out something out of somebody uh, that, for their own use. Hypocrisy is always included with guile, appearing one way, but actually being another. Now, the opposite of being filled with guile is to be pure-hearted. A person with no guile is a person whose motives are right, who is seeking to do the right thing, who has no intention whatsoever to use anybody to gain for themselves. So this does not mean Nathaniel was perfect. We've already seen he was far from perfect. But Jesus Christ says Nathaniel had a pure heart. He had a love for God in spite of the things he may have allowed into that heart uh, to get in the way of that. Notice Jesus Christ also says that, that Nathaniel is an Israelite indeed. What that means is Nathaniel was living the way an Israelite ought to live, with a pure heart and a right motive. We've already seen most Israelites were not like that. Most Israelites were not like that at all. In fact, the ruling class in Israel was the exact opposite of that. They were full of hypocrisy. They were full of deceit. They were full of guile. 
Their lives were classically characterized by a surface spirituality that has self-gain and power underneath it. In terms of Nathaniel's heart, Jesus Christ says Nathaniel is a Jew the way a Jew was supposed to be, God's people showing God to this world. And this underscores for us again, folks, God has more concern about the internals than he does about the externals. Now, God wants us to live right. Absolutely. God wants us to show Jesus Christ through our behavior to this world. But that behavior must come from a right heart. Otherwise, that outward display means very, very little in God's eyes. You may be surprised by this. There are people who come to church and play church. They play Christian. They come to this place and look like believers, and they may even sit and listen to the message, and they may show like they're really into it. But it's a game for an hour a week. And they walk out of this church or some other church and turn into somebody totally different. <laughs> you see, that's a, not a pure heart. That's a hypo- hypo- hypocrisy heart. That's a heart that is showing is one way, but the behavior is showing something else. God's not pleased with that. God wants unified people. God wants us to be congruent from heart to outward behavior as well. God is concerned about our motives. God is concerned about why we do what we do. Uh, A believer whose behavior is right and that comes from a right heart is a believer in whom is no guile. What God will judge us now for and what God will judge us for at the judgment seat of Christ is our motives, our hearts, the internals. It may surprise you to hear me say this. I'm sure it's going to shock you. I'm glad you're sitting down. I sin every day. Now, I know it's a shock to you. I know you were surprised by that. <laughs> you're laughing. Apparently, you're not so surprised by that. I sin every day. Sometimes it's a, a willful sin. Most often, it's simply sin that comes because part of being human and having a fleshly nature. Now, if God disqualified me or qualified me based upon whether or not I sin, I would be unusable. Thankfully, that is not what God does. God qualifies me for his service based on the motive of my heart when I do whatever it is that I do. Now, I'm not recommending this to you. I'm simply making the point. I may do something outside of God's plan for me. I may do something outside of God's will for me. But if I do that thing with the right motive, God will honor the motive. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.13 tells us that at the judgment seat of Christ, God is not going to look at the quantity of our works. He's not looking at how much I did. God is going to assess my works based upon what sort they are on the quality of my work. He'll reward me based upon why I did what I did. So if I do the wrong thing with the right motive, God will address me doing the wrong thing for sure. But he will still honor the motive that I had when I did it. And, folks, that is just one more example of the great mercy of God. (laughs) He could have done that thing any other way that he chose. But knowing us as he does, he realized that we struggle with always doing the right thing, even when we seek to serve him. And so he will find a way to honor us and bless us and reward us, even when we do things that are not exactly what he wants us to do. And Nathaniel is a clear example of that. Now, one more characteristic I'd like to give you about Nathaniel before we close this morning. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip saw called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. One more thing I'd like us to see this morning is the eagerness of Nathanael's faith. The eagerness of Nathanael's faith. Now notice in verse 48, he says, Whence knowest thou me? In other words, how do you know me? I've never met you before in my life. How do you know me? 
at this point, Nathaniel is still trying to wrap his head around the possibility that this truly is the Messiah. Because, again, many things about him just don't match up with what he expected. And so his question could have been one more of skepticism. He may have thought Jesus Christ was trying to pull one on him just to pull him in. Notice how Jesus Christ dispels all that doubt in the rest of verse 48. Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. Not a game Jesus Christ was playing. This was a display of omniscience. Jesus Christ was not physically there to see Nathaniel under that fig tree. So this one standing before him was one who was able to see into, into his heart because he was all-knowing. Now, very possibly the fig tree that Jesus Christ refers to here was actually a tree outside Nathaniel's home. Uh, those trees provided shade. They were, they were planted specifically to provide shade. The homes were so hot that they would go outside and sit under these trees to gain some relief from the heat that was inside the home. And more than likely, that's where Nathaniel did his Bible study, did his study of the Scripture. And in his omniscience, Jesus Christ saw him there and knew what he was doing there and understood he had a sincere heart and a true desire for the things of the Lord. And with all that, and that was all it took for Nathaniel to say what he said. Look at verse 49. Nathaniel answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus Christ's whole point of coming to the earth. The whole reason John wrote this gospel, uh, the whole message we are to presenting is that Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God. That's the message. That's the message. And as Nathaniel heard him speak, his mind went back to the Old Testament scriptures that professed the Messiah to be God's Son. Many of the Old Testament prophecies proclaimed that when Jesus Christ came, the Messiah came, he would be God in the flesh. And when Nathaniel made that connection... When he realized this one who stood before him was the one he read about in Scripture, he was the Messiah. He had a complete 100% commitment to him. Nathaniel was nothing halfway about this commitment. It was a full, heartfelt commitment on the part of Nathaniel. Look at verse 50. Jesus answered and said unto, him, said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Can I paraphrase that? Nathaniel, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> you think this is a big deal. You just wait a couple of years. You're going to see some fantastic things before we're done with this thing. That's what he was saying. Because of Nathaniel's faith. Because he was willing to trust Jesus Christ 100%, Jesus promised to him that he was going to see things he couldn't even imagine, things that nobody on earth had yet seen. Remember how we started this message? Nathaniel, just an average, everyday guy. And that fella was going to see things that nobody else had ever seen before. Just an average guy, a normal, everyday guy. He was going to see things that he couldn't even imagine. Here's a lesson, folks. God has amazing things he wants to do with us and through us and in front of us. God has some things up his sleeve we can't even begin to comprehend. And I mean that as literally as I can mean it. All that it takes to see those things performed is to trust him and believe him and follow him. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. The only requirement that God has for us to see him do great things in our lives and great things in our church and great things in our world is simply trust him to lead you wherever he wants you to go. 
I'm going to tell you something. Nathaniel saw Jesus Christ do some amazing things in the next three years. He saw him do some fantastic things. Where did that start? It started with Nathaniel being willing to believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was and trust Jesus Christ to lead the way. Now, I've said this many, many times in this study. I'm doing that on purpose. I want us to get it. If we want to do God's work, if we want to be Jesus Christ to our world, all that it takes, please hear me, please hear me, don't let Satan distract you, please hear me, all that it takes for God to use you is a willingness to follow and let him lead. Amen. That's all it takes. You say, I'm not qualified. It doesn't matter what qualifications you have. Can you follow? Can you follow? If you can follow, you're qualified. If you can't follow, then let God take care of that, and he'll deal with that, and he'll make you a follower if you ask him to do it. And I'm going to tell you something else, folks, and I mean this with all my heart. I can't say it any more strongly than I'm going to say it. We will be amazed at what God will do before us and in us and through us if we simply put our full faith in him. You say, God doesn't do miracles anymore. Oh, you just wait. I'm not talking about miracle workers now. I'm not talking about the guy on the platform smacking people in the head. I'm not talking about that. (laughs) God does miracles, folks. Every day. Every day. If you just keep your eyes open. God's doing a miracle with this church right now. God is leading this church on a path that we never saw him leading us into. You know what that is? That's a group of people who say, you know what, Lord? We're just going to follow you. We have no idea where you're taking us. We're just going to trust you and watch what you do. And God is doing some fantastic things. Hope you're not missing it. Hope you're not missing it. I guarantee you, folks, based upon the word of God, not based on what Sabaka says, based upon the word of God, and just based on this account alone, if you will choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ and let him lead, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> He's got some fantastic things planned for you. Just be a follower. Let's pray.